This is Mark Lieberman, your host of the show, The World According to Mark, brought to you by WPVM-FM in Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7 on your dial and streaming globally on WPVMFM.org. My guest today, who I'm very thankful has agreed to appear, he's a little under the weather, Joseph Lupica, through uh, his company, Newport Healthcare Advisors. And I wanna thank you, Joe, for coming on the show today. You're welcome. It's Joe Lupica of Newpoint Healthcare Advisors. <laughs> okay, unless <laughs> we, should go, we should go forward uh, and I am fallible. So we all know that. <laughs> all right. No, I, no, you owe me one. <laughs> Joseph Lupica of right. Newpoint Healthcare Advisors. Okay. But you can call me Joe. But I, and, I, and indeed I will. So okay. uh, I'm going to let you uh, fill in any parts of your background that you consider re relevant, but let me explain to our guests a little bit of what I know about you. Uh, you are a veteran healthcare industry advisor. You have served um, in a number of nonprofit, corporate, and public sector clients, acting as an investment banker and a development offer officer. You've provided uh, support with capital formation, governor, governor, governance advice, and affiliation services. I'm having trouble articulating today. And what that means in plain English is that you've assisted a number of enterprises with your expert advice on how to manage their healthcare operations and also provided instruction and advice in connection with mergers and affiliations and other combinations of both for-profit and non-profit healthcare entities. You have uh, a, a distinguished career also in government. You worked uh, for a pr prior presidential administration the Reagan administration. And you have let me know that you are also serving on the Health and Human Services Special Advisory Committee for Rural Health. So as a result of that long litany of um, experiences uh, that you have, I, I thought that you, Joseph, Joe, were uniquely qualified to comment uh, on healthcare system here in Asheville, North Carolina, which is just an example of a major nonprofit healthcare system that went through a transaction with a for-profit corporation, in fact, the largest for-profit uh, owner uh, of hospitals in the United States, HCA. And while you were not involved in any capacity, as I recall, in structuring or advising on that transaction, you were asked in a, uh, at least one article that I read to just give your commentary about, about that transaction and how it compared with other transactions that you have been involved with. So let me stop and let you fill in any blanks in terms of your experience and career. And then we'll start talking about um, healthcare mergers, consolidations and HCA and mission. Well, you already gave away how long I've been around by saying I worked at the White House for President Reagan. <laughs> um, but I, uh, so there's a lot to fill in. But really, um, what we try to do in the affiliation process is help boards um, 
formulate their objectives and really commit to them and then articulate them to the community. And we also work with the community to help them articulate their objectives for the hospital. And if it's M&A, of course, there's a lot of secrecy surrounding that just as a business matter. But we firmly believe that uh, that shouldn't prevent us from talking to the community, asking them what they want, why they want it, when they want it, and what they're hoping for for their hospital. Before we even mention there's a deal on the table, just what are you looking for for this hospital? It gives them a buy-in to the situation. Well, let's um, use that, uh, Joe, as a jumping off point. Again, sure. uh, you weren't involved in any way with the HCA mission. Uh, no, in fact, the only time, uh, HCA has been on the other side of the table from us, and but we've never represented them. In fact, for the last 10 years, just about all our clients have been not-for-profit. So from a historical perspective, um, there was a public uh, announcement uh, in March of 2018 that there was a deal that had been negotiated between Mission, a uh, 133-year-old nonprofit, and HCA Healthcare, nation's largest for-profit hospital chain, with a reported acquisition price of $1.5 billion. It has been reported uh, in local newspapers, Citizen Time being one of them, that this was the first time that anybody on the outside knew about it. And some folks claimed to be stunned by it. They didn't have any idea that negotiations had been underway, that mission had placed itself on the table, so to speak, much less that there was um, maybe not a fully developed acquisition agreement, but at least the parameters. Uh, I mean, even the mayor of Asheville uh, said she was surprised and had no idea about it. Um, that, you know, again, speaks to the issue you made a brief comment about, about how mergers and affiliations are oftentimes conducted in a non-public way um, because telling the public in advance gives people the opportunity to potentially derail a project. It also um, could prove an embarrassment for companies who aren't really sure whether they wanna go in this direction or that direction. So a level of confidentiality is not uncommon in these transactions. But you mentioned that in terms of some of the ways in which you've operated, you have tried to advise on how to, to put together a, an arrangement similar to the, the HCA mission deal that would get buy-in from the community. Now, does that mean then that you sometimes get called in even before there's anything on paper or a letter of intent or anything like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, um, we firmly believe in process. Um, and if there's a breakdown in process, you'll have a breakdown in buy-in normally. Um, people can be shocked. That, that's just part of it. Um, but we are called in early. In, in our best situations, we're called in when the board is considering their objectives, uh, what, they, what they want, why they want it. First thing I say is, why am I here? And there have been many situations uh, where we've said, you don't need to do anything. 
Um, in fact, a couple of them were fairly public situations uh, and, you know, headline consultant recommends not doing a deal. That's a shocker, right? But uh, that's, uh, you know, you just do the best thing. So it's, it's a matter of talking to folks uh, ahead of time and getting in early before there's any letter of intent. By the time you're at the letter of intent stage, you're well into the process because the way we like to conduct it, you try to get as many candidates as you can, as many potential partners as you can in there. Um, this is not a brokerage process. We're not just there to say, hey, I have a deal for you. Um, <clears throat> it's really a strategic process and a discernment that a board does in its fiduciary duty to do the best thing for the community. And that is not always keeping the people's hospital as it is. Sometimes it is doing a deal, doing a transaction and making sure that there's good return on it. And that uh, if you do it right, it's like cloning. And it sounds like you had a little cloning here. You had a hospital, it was worth some value. And now you have a hospital and a foundation. The hospital's owned by a for-profit, but so is the grocery store. Um, as I said, my clients are nonprofits, but uh, we can't just get hung up on the corporate tax structure of the buyer. Well, let me um, again sort of report to you as a context what has been sure. In because I'm not very familiar with this deal, but just what I followed in the media. So, from a timeline perspective, and this again has uh, been reported in articles that have come out just in the last uh, few months or several months. And one thing to be noted is that um, Mission, from a financial standpoint, was doing pretty well. Uh, one article that I read said they were making, quote, record profits. I'm not really sure um, if we can completely rely on that or what that means, but they weren't a distressed hospital system. Correct. There, there are many distressed hospital systems across the country, um, including nonprofits, who and particularly during and since the COVID pandemic that everybody knows is gonna need a bailout or may need a buyout or may need a white knight to come in. It appears that mission was not in that posture, that it was doing very well, that its uh, executive level team were drawing really large salaries. I read somewhere that the top a uh, few people were getting compensated at a level comparable to what um, the chief executives at a, another major, much larger healthcare system, Duke, were making. Um, there were concerns that uh, the frontline workers weren't doing as well as they could have by a comparative basis, but it was doing, doing well. HCA uh, has been around for a long time in various iterations. And while it has managed to get itself into some legal quandaries from time to time, including transactions that they've been involved in, as well as allegations about fraudulent billing of Medicare and Medicaid, and they've settled most of those without admitting or denying, but they weren't, they weren't hurting, but apparently they were looking at mission or they knew that mission was a potential target for their, for their program, for their uh, uh, hospital systems that they own to add to their, to their, to their chain, so to speak. And according to one of the articles that was in the Citizen Times, um, 
that HCA had gotten in touch with a quote, longtime external strategic advisor by the name of Philip Green, who actually received um, offers from HCA at least three months before the board of mission had authorized its president and CEO to look for potential partners. So, you know, and, and that, I guess that happens a lot. Um, there, you know, companies like HCA decided that, that they would take the bull by the horns and they'd go out looking for a potential acquisition. And this was, this was it. Um, but again, I, I don't suggest to you uh, that, that there's anything nefarious about that. But, doesn't sound like it. But it does sound like there was, um, you know, there were things going on uh, in, a, in a confidential way to try to see if there was a potential interest. And, and it went further than that. Apparently, um, the uh, HCA executives and some of the mission executives got together. They got together in, in Nashville, where HCA is located. And they had a working group and all of this stuff was done without any public announcement or without the involvement of much less without the involvement of the community. And I think where some people think that this transaction might have gone wrong, um, and I'm not sure, I'm not making a statement that it went, that it went wrong, is that HCA had a leg up on the transaction that HCA was the uh, was was really sort of the preferred suitor from the get-go and that they were given an opportunity and so other potential buyers other companies who might not have just bought the whole kit and caboodle so to speak and might have had an affiliation which at one time I guess HCA and Mission were at least discussing which would have had shared governance of the mission hospital system in Asheville and Western North Carolina, that, that it, wasn't a, it wasn't a free market. And in, in this country, I think we tend to believe that if there's free market and pot other potential opportunities, the end result might be better. So well, I don't know- There's two ways to measure, uh, to make sure that the end result at least conforms with some kind of a standard. Um, it's right in the Uniform Commercial Code for selling, you know, assets even. Um, either you have a public process with lots of bidding and the process itself creates the fairest price, or you have um, a valuation with generally accepted standards of fair market value. Um, and by the way, this is a bit of the public information I did look at that uh, my cat has joined me for this interview, if that's okay. Excellent. This is pandemic interview here. Not my office. This is my home. Um, so the uh, uh, a very good valuation firm that that we often have our clients use. I noticed put something online. They were independent. They just made a commentary on it, and they showed that it was pretty healthy price that uh, that Mission received. I mean, it was uh, according to these guys, it was eight point nine times EBITDA and eighty three percent of revenue. By those measures, that's well above the norm uh, for these deals. Now, maybe it's because it's a large place. Maybe it's because it has a lot of possibilities in the future. But the price ended up really, really good. So there may be complaints about the process. If I were another suitor, I would be upset. 
but I don't know if the people of your community need to be upset because the end result was pretty healthy. And the hospital was healthy. You made that point. The hospital was healthy. Why did they do a deal? You know, fiduciaries have to look at this every day. Um, hospitals don't only do a deal when they're staggering in and they're, they're dying and they get scraped off the pavement. And that's, that's the worst way to do a transaction for your communities. Wait, you know, ride it all the way down, serve your ego and say, I'm not giving up control and then get blown up at the end. Now, um, these fiduciaries had to look at, we have something here that's worth something. Can we monetize it for the community? Is this the right time to do that? I don't know. I wasn't involved. But, you know, I, I told a board once, I said, gee, you're, if you were sitting on a portfolio of stocks and bonds worth a billion dollars, and in that case, it was a lot smaller, but, uh, would you just hang on to it? Or better yet, if you had a portfolio and I came to you and I said, hey, I have this hospital I want you to buy. You can own this hospital, give up all your stocks and bonds and have this one illiquid investment. Wow, if those trustees were in it for the uh, investment potential, they'd say, no, that's a horrible deal. But every day they woke up and were on that board of the hospital, they were essentially owning a hospital instead of a balanced portfolio. Now, there's, there's a reason they might do that, an overriding reason, which is community service. For the good of the community, instead of a pile of money, we need to have a hospital that will serve people, will provide access, charity care, you know, modern technology, all those things you want from your hospital. So the best situation is if you're a healthy hospital and you figure out, gee, we can clone this. We can have the healthy hospital and we can have a big foundation to work on other healthcare matters. And that's always a big question. Will the foundation do the right thing? Probably. You know, will they uh, be able to serve more than, we're so hospital centric in this country. You know, really wellness is not about hospitals. Health is not about hospitals anymore. Hospitals are sort of the center of an ecosystem a lot of times, but really there are lots of other needs. Um, the social determinants of health, you know, among those determinants, medicine and healthcare is only about 10 or 20% of the impact on the outcomes. Other things like poverty, uh, black lung disease, uh, Western, uh, Western North Carolina, I know, uh, has uh, the furniture industry, and there's a lot of lung issues there. COPD is a big deal. Uh, I only know that because my Rural Health Advisory Committee actually traveled to Western North Carolina and saw some of it. I forgot to mention that to you before. But um, so the question is, can we take care of the health of the community? Now, that's the ideal. Does, are, there, are they humans on that board? Are they swayed by being part of a big fancy system? Um, are there humans who are swayed by just hanging on to power? A lot of times when you hear local control, that means local control by who? By me and my buddies, that's local control. So that's not necessarily uh, an altruistic fiduciary position. So local control by whom? Um, what kind of control did a normal everyday citizen have over mission before the deal? I mean, really practically, for those who are worried about it, think about how much control you had before. If it was a great board and great outreach, you might've had some. I don't know, but there were a few members of the community who were on the board. I imagine they were representing a certain elite segment of the community, but uh, I don't know that. Um, in any event, 
uh, you know, examining these options are a big part of a board's duty. Now, normally they're focused on operations, but in reality, the CEO should do the operations. The board should always be looking at what can we do better? How can we be better? Even if it means giving up our nice local control that we love. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And as I said, I've, I've often uh, advised against doing a transaction. Um, okay. Let me let our listeners know we're just tuning in again that my guest today is Joe Joseph Lupica. 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 I'll get it. I'll get it right by the end of the show. Lupica, a, a veteran healthcare industry advisor with uh, New Point Healthcare Advisors. And he has a lot of experience in transactions similar to the one that uh, we experienced in Asheville, North Carolina. And let me just point out or you know, emphasize a couple of things that you mentioned and then put it back to you. I myself have been, was an advisor to many hospitals and healthcare systems during my career as a lawyer, including merger and acquisition transactions. Um, what you said about you know, the fairness of the deal and how it should be a, a, a apprised and, and evaluated are points I think worth considering. First of all, in a nonprofit, as you mentioned, um, there are no stock owners. There are not people who have you know, equity in the, the healthcare system. A mission was profitable, but profitable meant it was able to pay its expenses and still have cash reserve to make future investments. So it didn't mean that uh, dividends, at least in terms of the classic concept right. of it's, dividends. It's, 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 normal, it's normally reinvestment. And they were actually making, and the public information I just looked at, they were making capital investments. In fact, their investments exceeded their EBITDA, exceeded their earnings. Um, that, that can be dangerous in, in the long run. Uh, so maybe that's why they were considering something, even though they were profitable. Correct, and and I would agree with you. So, so you know, while another way of of providing remuneration to interested parties is through their salaries, and through bonuses and things of that nature, and as I mentioned, uh, the 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 big the big kahunas, so to speak, of mission, we're we're taking down some pretty significant salaries in the hundreds of thousands, and in the case of the chief executive officer, millions of dollars, but it's a big job. Mission was, is, was, is and was a huge sprawling system. And as you say, not just a hospital, it was many hospitals and it had many clinics and alternative and ancillary healthcare facilities. And it employed or had relationships with a large number of physicians and auxiliary healthcare providers in the community. So um, that being said, while you know people can complain about the fact that the local control was taken away and it was put under the auspices of a for-profit entity, which has got other hospitals that it works with and it's not, it's not even in North Carolina and, and object to those things, and it, it can also be said that perhaps this wasn't an egalitarian process of, you know, asking people in the community to vote for what they wanted to do, which would have been a pretty tough 
way to, to do a transaction of this type. Well, I do it all the time with county hospitals, but this was a private entity. Right. So in this context, um, a deal was, was struck and the community presumably at some point had a, an opportunity to weigh in, if, at least informally. But in North Carolina, the uh, attorney general has a, a fiduciary responsibility and oversight responsibility. Mm -hmm. And he, um, he evaluated this transaction once there was an agreement in place and uh, accordingly made some um, changes that he thought oh, would, would be more yeah. protect, protective. So um, State Attorney General Josh Stein um, required that as between Mission, HCA, and this Dogwood Health Trust, which I wanna pause on for a second, the money the $1.5 billion that was in effect paid by HCA, it, that money was, was allocated to a separate foundation, as you mentioned, Joe, um, the Dogwood Health Trust. And um, they are distinct from mission, distinct from HCA. And the money that they got out of this transaction is supposed to be used generally to promote healthcare and other social programs, but it can't, by, def by definition under the law, they can't use it to buy things or provide, get services from or whatever from, from HCA slash mission. It's, got, it's set up there because that money in effect, because mission was a nonprofit, belongs to the community at large. So- and there's so much more healthcare that can be done, as I said before, outside of a hospital. So before your community had an asset that was all hospital centric, nice, nice hospital system from everything I've heard, still is. But what the community has now is $1.5 billion, probably growing to spend on the continuum of healthcare beyond just hospital services. And that's very important. Um, to the community. And, and again, the nature of a foundation, most people uh, know this, but let me, it bears repeating, is that money is not supposed to, under normal circumstances, be dissipated. It is an asset right. and the asset, the monies are, you know, are presumably prudently invested mm -hmm. in various uh, uh, you know, different sorts of things, stock, mutual funds, bonds, whatever. And, and the money that is available for social programs or other programs comes as a result of the income. So if all things are working correctly, the $1.5 billion doesn't dissipate. It just stays there as a, as a reserve, essentially. It's the uranium. It's just creating energy. And in fact, um, right, it should be spent from the income. They can invade principal if necessary, if there's a, uh, a regional emergency or whatever. But the idea is to spend your income. In fact, most foundations, I think, are under an IRS requirement to spend 5% per year to make that go out of the foundation into the community uh, to serve their mission. Okay. So um, let me, again, take a quick break for a moment uh, to announce my guest.
I want to reintroduce my guest, Joseph Lupica. I think I got it right that time. New Point, fourth time's a charm, New Point Healthcare Advisors. And we're talking about mergers, acquisitions, consolidations in the healthcare industry. And we're talking about it in the context of the acquisition uh, by uh, HCA, a for-profit hospital system uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, I believe, of the mission system. And we were talking about, you know, where does the community get a chance to voice its comments, questions, and concerns, uh, largely not too much in this case before the transaction was um, executed uh, after the agreement. Um, there was supervision by the attorney general uh, and some changes were made that were supposed to protect the community at large. But what you said, Joe, is that that's not, it's, it doesn't have to be that way, but that is, that is somewhat typical of the way these transactions get done. My, in my experience, we've tried really hard to do it slightly differently. Um, there's, there's a way, even if it's a confidential situation, um, we get the community involved. And the key to that is we listen. Um, if you're just listening, you're not disclosing anything about any transaction. You ask a few questions, you listen to their hopes and dreams, aspirations, practical situations, and you gather that information and provide it to the board as best you can. And people get a feeling, I remember going back to a small town where we had done a transaction years earlier, probably seven years later. And uh, I met someone there and she said, oh, my grandfather, he helped to get that, do that transaction. I said, really? Oh yeah, he was really involved in shaping it. I said, Who was it? And I, I didn't recognize it. Then I went back to my notes and found out he was just somebody who came in for one of our private listening sessions. We held those, we have like office hours when we go into a community. And he came in and talked to me for about half an hour, 45 minutes. That was it. But in his mind, he helped to shape that transaction. And everybody he knew, knew that he helped. And by the way, in reality, he did help shape it. Everybody helps to shape it. And that's the investment banker's job. We really have to listen. First, we listen. That's, that's one of our, you know, standards, our beliefs. Well, let me, um, just to get your perspective on it, uh, at least uh, have you comment on some of the grievances, so to speak, that sure. pe people have had. Um, we're not going to get in the weeds on this, but not too long after the transaction, there was uh, an interest and a movement by the nurses to unionize. Um, there are many hospitals that don't have unions for nurses or for any of the players. Um, Mission did not have one before HCA came into being, but the, suddenly there was this big push. And like any union activity that I've been familiar with, you have management's view is we don't need unions. And if you have unionization, you know, it'll be more bureaucratic. We won't be able to do what's necessarily in the best interest of the patient. And then you have the union, the, the nurses in this case, who want to unionize saying, in order for us to be able to provide the best 
healthcare services for the community, um, the nurses have to organize. And mm -hmm. so there, there was back and forth, and then ultimately the unionization campaign won. But I think HCA, you know, had to bear the brunt of a lot of negative commentary that they weren't supportive. But I, that again, I'm assuming that that's not uncommon. I, I, I don't know. Well, that's a campaign, and and nurses have every right to uh, to do that, and it's important that they do fight for their fair equity, um, and and to have a fair pay for what they do. They're so important to the system. What I, what I, and I don't know what happened here, but what I worry about is when campaigns start focusing on uh, wedge issues, so to speak, um, saying, oh, this is a horrible hospital, uh, quality's horrible, don't send people here, they're gonna die. When it gets into that kind of campaigning, that's so destructive. Um, what they get out of it is, you know, a contract and they get votes, lots of votes to organize. Um, and I don't know what happened here, but but having, you know, my father was a, an officer of the local bricklayers union and I carry a union bug on my card proudly, but um, I just like to keep to the issue at hand. Okay, so I'm just pointing out that that was one of the mm -hmm. complaints and, and- And it worked, right? They, they ended up getting a nice, uh, was it a good settlement? Uh, well, they had a very large proportion of the nurses vote in favor of the union. Good. Um, and then did I, they I think, get a con good contract after that? Um, I haven't studied the contract, and no, but I haven't seen anything that said the contract was not uh, was not uh, fair or reasonable or, or whatever. That was a success. So again, I guess you can resolve that as a, a success. Success, now, except for any collateral damage it may have caused. Was there any lasting collateral damage? Um, not clear. I think that because this uh, union effort took place um, right in the teeth of the COVID academic, uh, pandemic, and when there were complaints generally about um, not enough, not enough uh, protective equipment. All oh, right, right. Too many people that uh, were working too many hours. Huh? Uh, people who were not characterized as employees and so didn't have the protections that an employee had and were simply independent contractors. Yep. All, all of those issues sort of coalesced into uh, HCA now HCA HCA slash mission. Is, was not being is not being fair, and that that was one of the motivations I think for uh, moving the um, the effort to unionize uh, up to the front. Well, good. I'm glad that worked out for them. Well, let's move. Uh, give me let me give you another example. Um, H uh, Mission has has had for some period of time. I don't know actually for how long uh, a family care practice. Um, the largest of them were, were in Asheville proper, and they had aborted internal medicine practitioners. And uh, at least uh, the numbers are somewhere between four to 8,000, I think 8,000 total, not just for the Asheville component, but various satellite operations. 8,000 what, I'm sorry. 8,000 patients were, had, had, uh, participated with their or had their family practice doctor as part of the the mission complex for internal medicine okay. and and an, a 
notification was sent out uh, that it was going to close, that, 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 that mission had, that HCH, HCA mission had decided they, they didn't need that uh, practice anymore. They didn't need that practice group. So they closed so was that it their down. Entire, was that their entire primary care service or was it certain clinics? Um, I think that it was their entire um, family care practice um, that uh, the physicians who were uh, employed by mission, uh, in including obviously not just internal medicine docs, but also nurses and um, physician assistants, that that primary care service would be abandoned. They would still have urgent care like walk-in clinics, but if you had a doctor who was part of the, um, what was the, the mission uh, family practice, you know that they, they were disbanding that and patients were free to um, find other physicians who were in some other locations, but not a consolidated family practice. Did those, did those physicians vaporize or did they then become independent physicians? Well, I can't, again, I can't say. I can tell you that in my own case, I had a physician that I was going to from that practice and he was uh, in his early 60s and he just decided he wasn't going to practice anymore. So he, he, he retired out as a result of this, probably would have stayed on a few more years. Where the other physicians went, I don't know. But it, it, was, it was seen as a relatively quick transition. In other words, from the date of the announcement to the date that that service was closed down was probably a few months at most. And what that meant, and, and while Mission published a list of here's some other physicians that you might want to use, it was not seamless. It was up to the patient, essentially, to contact whatever physician he or she felt was, would be good from a location standpoint and try to get them to accept the patient into their practice, which of course the physician has a choice. The physician doesn't have to accept a patient. The physician might not be accepting Medicare patients or might not be accepting Medicaid patients or just might be full up, has had more, has more patients than he or she can, can uh, adequately um, provide for. So that was that caused a stir is all I can say. That's unfortunate. I think it's every hospital's duty to make sure that access is available. Um, if, if, for instance, if a clinic is closed because there's competition um, and the competition is satisfying demand, that's one thing. But if there's demand that's going unserved, um, and I don't know the situation, maybe there was adequate uh, service available, but um, I think it's their duty to keep that up. There, there are different models of physician relationships with hospitals. Um, used to be the majority were independent. Then hospitals started acquiring practices. Um, and it, it can go back and forth. There's a trend is probably more toward um, employing physicians, but uh, you know, the independent model can work too. Well, I think we talked before we went on air that um, people may not think that primary care or family medicine is a big revenue producer in and of itself. Oh my gosh, and, it is. And if it, anybody it, thinks that they're not good business people because 
um, primary care um, is, is essential to keeping the ecosystem of your hospital alive. I mean, they, they I hate to call it this, but they drive the volume of the hospital. So um, for a hospital to do that does not seem like a good business decision unless there's something else involved that I don't know about. Um, so I, I don't like the idea selfishly hospitals should not want to close primary care practice. Maybe if they have overpaid orthopedists or things like that, they may say, ah, oh, let them go independent. But boy, primary care, to the extent you can seamlessly weave that, integrate that into your system, the better you are. Now, integration and ownership are not the same thing. You can have integration with independent physicians too. So I can't really comment on the nuances of that, but um, I understand how that could frustrate people. Um, after this is done, maybe I'll just uh, give me a couple names of the replacement physicians and I'll just place a call in clear blue and see if they'll take me. Have you done that? Give it a uh, shot. I was able to locate a physician who has an affiliation with Mission but is not owned by, not employed by. Good. And, and, uh, one, and he, was, he is an internal medicine doc, boarded in internal medicine, which is you know a little bit higher a level of expertise, well. but my partner, I have a partner who's a family practice guy who might argue with, <laughs> but no, it's true. But you know, another thing is for most of the needs that we have for primary care, um, advanced practitioners are also very important. In fact, my primary care physician for a long time was a, uh, was a, uh, I think she was a, a nurse practitioner. It was just great, easy to get to very accessible. And I live in Phoenix, where I have a lot of uh, access, and I used her for a long time. Well, that's an interesting issue. And uh, now that you mentioned it, the physician that I was able to uh, get together with for my personal needs basically sat down with me and started talking about, you know, healthcare in general. And he said uh, to me, uh, with uh, some degree of concern that he's, he's only gonna be practicing for a few more years. And he said that he thinks that the face of healthcare is going to be dr drastically different for primary care, that there won't be doctors, MDs or DOs apparently, doing that sort of work. It will all be relegated to nurse practitioners or physician assistants. And while I think the point you're making is those people have a certain competency that makes sense for the job they're doing, a lot of old, perhaps older school doctors will say, yeah, they can do the garden variety of things, but at the, at the core level, the entry level that people tend to go to, call up your primary care doc. If that doc is not really a doctor, they may miss something. They may miss something more unusual, but something that could be deadly or very significant because they don't have the advanced training. Well, that may be the view of... Uh some of the physicians out there, but you know, um, the physician that we work with in New Point, as one of our colleagues, um, actually speaks very highly of, of advanced practitioners. Um, it's just that there are, uh, well, it's, it's, it's fine. It's just fine. I, I, I think that an older doc may think that, look, the problem we have in this country is not enough physicians. Uh, that HHS committee I'm on wrote, just wrote a report and I wrote the part that said, you know, why we need more physicians in rural areas. And the medical schools, first of all, are very hard to get into. I'm sure there's some very worthwhile candidates that had a, 
a 382 instead of a 384 QM and they don't get into medical school and they would have been great then. So there's a, there's, a, there's a bottleneck there. Then after they graduate, they have to get a residency. It's hard to find residency slots right now. Um, we have the same number of residency slots in this country because they're funded by, they have to be approved by a commission and then they're funded by the government. Um, we have the same number that we had in 1992 or something like that. It's wholly inadequate. And it, there, weren't that, there weren't that many then. I wonder, I don't wanna make a huge accusation here, but I don't mind saying that I wonder if there's a little bit of a guild mentality uh, from the medical associations trying to hold back the number of uh, new physicians that are minted. I don't know. It doesn't matter in rural areas because competition's not a problem. We need more docs and everybody knows it, but maybe in urban areas they want less. I don't know, but there seems to be a restriction. I, I shouldn't point fingers. There's a bottleneck at the medical schools. There's a bottleneck coming out. In fact, is Mercer University in your state? No, that's, no. that's Georgia. Georgia, okay. That was another meeting of our committee, another site visit. The president of the medical school there was just pleading she wanted to create more physicians. She wanted to have more residency slots in rural areas. That's the hardest part. And that's where they're really needed. So yes, we need more physicians, but I will say that uh, we have a good, we have really good solution to that right now. Um, you know, it's like the old days. Um, I don't know, maybe registered nurses would, uh, would do a lot of scut work that they don't do now. I, I don't need my nurse to empty the bedpan. So, I don't always need my doctor to, uh, uh, you know, take my temperature and do my regular checkup. Will they miss things? I don't know. Well, primary care docs can miss things. They sure, just order right. some tests, right? Sure. Well, I think you're hitting a good point, and I'd like to get you to comment on it again. Is is a lot of the things that people are complaining about, and I haven't gone through the whole list. You know, closing down or centralizing chemotherapy services. That you mentioned there were hospital issues. A lot of things that people complain about with regard to healthcare are not necessarily accelerated uh, by these acquisitions and mergers. There are problems throughout the healthcare delivery system that mm -hmm. are problematic. That's what oh. you mentioned. And then the, the second thing is people don't like to give up the old ways in which they were cared for. So everybody would love to have a doctor come to the house with the black bag and provide personal care. Well, that ain't happening for the most part. So, guess what, we're better off. I'd rather see the doctor in the office where there's access to at least the basic tests right there. You know, it, it's, a, it's a different world and we all like to hold on to things. We don't see the big picture and I don't see the big picture, but you know, those of us in the field, things seem so simple but to the patient, from their from their perspective, it's not as simple, and that's why we all, we have to be more aware of what the end users are thinking, and they have to be patient enough to think about the ecosystem. But really, it's up to the professionals in the field, like me, like hospitals, to make sure that we have try to assume the viewpoint of or um, request uh, embrace the viewpoint of the community when we're doing this kind of healthcare planning from on high. Well, let me let me ask you a, again, a sort of a pointed question about the, the transaction again sure. that we experienced in Western North Carolina, but there are similar transactions. You have a multi-billion dollar um, for-profit hospital chain 
that uh, because it's for profit, it means it has stockholders and it, it wants to keep the stockholders happy. Wants to keep- Can I interrupt there? Please. Well, let's talk about the difference. Now, for-profit hospitals have to make a profit. On the other hand, non-for-profit hospitals have to make a profit, don't they? Wait, but, but for-profit hospitals have Wall Street investors. Not-for-profit hospitals have Wall Street investors. They have bondholders. They dance to the tune of the bondholders. Now it's different. You know, you're a lawyer, I'm a lawyer. Equity has more power than debt. But you tell that to a hospital that's uh, near their default level. You know, the, the debt has a lot of power. So uh, hospitals are constantly trying to please Wall Street. Little not-for-profit hospitals and uh, on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, I had a client. We were so concerned about what Wall Street thought. And you know what's our rating, and are we going to be able to be investment grade again someday? So there is the Wall Street pressure on everybody. Um, hospitals are a business, not for profit. Is under the 501c3 exemption for charities. But you know, a hospital is not exactly a soup kitchen. It's not a museum. It's a business that actually provides a service, is measured on that service, has Wall Street investors, and has to perform and has to make has to make a bottom line, whether it's cash flow or EBITDA or, or um, net income. It's essential that you have some bottom line to live off of and to provide for your future. It doesn't go to stockholders necessarily. Even at HCA, I don't know if they pay dividends or not. Um, that's just a different form of investment, a different form of raising capital. Um, so I, I don't see that much difference, but, uh, I'm sure there's some. I don't want to be seen as the apostle for the four prophets. God forbid. I've I've been on the other side of them my whole career, but I do see that there are legitimate arguments on both sides. Well, I'm glad you said that. I want to ask you then um, to react to a, a simplistic uh, complaint I've heard, okay. which, is, which is that yes, there are similarities between for-profit and non-profits. At the end of the day, they're both businesses. And they both have interested third parties, whether they be stockholders or bondholders or whatever. That makes a lot of sense to me. When people say, however, that a for-profit enterprise like HCA, and I haven't studied HCA's history, that the only way they're going to do better financially is by cutting costs. Because, you know, it's not like, again, they can... They're, they're, they get paid whatever the, the insurance companies want to pay them, whether it's government or commercial. So the only way for them to have more net profit at the end of the day is to cut costs. And so when they cut costs, they reduce services. Well, that's not the only way. Uh, remember, there's, you can try to raise your prices and you say, no, that doesn't work. You're right. You can, um, you can increase your volume. You can do more business. Well, how do you do that? That may require some spending. That may mean don't cut primary care because you want to protect the volume side. So there are ways to adjust the balance that aren't just by cutting. The old saying, you can't cut your way to success. Now, sometimes um, a streamlined, well-run business comes into a not-for-profit that's been kind of local and kind of gets a little fat. I don't know if this one did. I think this is very well-run. If you look at the... Uh, results at least. Um, but sometimes an outside view can come in and say, you know, you really don't need 
this service here. Uh, I, I read an article about the closing of the oncology uh, chemotherapy. One of the main reasons was that they had competition in that community. And so when you look at the bottom line for the community is access, right? Forget HCA. As a community member, I want access. Well, the, the Asheville, the mission clinic is gone, but it's gone because there's a competitor that I was going to or my neighbors were going to. So I still have the service, don't I? Um, and, you know, competition is good, but it doesn't, it's not that kind of competition. It's not like a supermarket um, because you're going to pay the same as the patient, um, whether there are one or two. Well, interesting comment. Um, before HCA came into the picture, we had, I won't say that mission was a monopoly, but, but to a certain extent, it was close to a monopoly. It had, you know, the largest system, the most employees, um, the most facilities, the largest reach. And that, I, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but obviously just because it's been recast as a for-profit, that hasn't really changed. So you now have a, a, a continuation of that quote monopolization, although it's not complete monopolization as you pointed out. But is, is, that, a, is that in and of itself a problem? Is there, sh sh would it be better for the overall community if there were other stronger players in the healthcare er area? I'll give you the consultant's answer. Depends. Um, <laughs> now, sometimes it's worse. Uh, we don't want to have a nuclear arms race where everybody's trying to build better with the payers. Well, that's dangerous too because um, because if you take away as a consumer, what voice do I have in the local grocery store? Now, we can tug on the sleeves of a board member, but you can still do that even if it's a for-profit, I imagine they have a local board of some kind, even though it doesn't have ultimate power over decisions. So to, to that point, again, you can't, the transaction has, is, has taken place. Mm -hmm. Our sense of it is, as you say, healthcare services are still gonna be needed in this area, still be provided. HCA is gonna do its job. If people are concerned about quality of care, they'll register their complaints. Presumably the board is, has some uh, permeabilities. People can contact the board, I guess, or they can contact their patient advocates and complain about this, that, or the other thing. But at the end of the day, there really isn't a whole lot, as you say, that a consumer can do. And we, and we shouldn't just simply say that for-profit acquisitions of nonprofits are either good or bad. It as it all depends, as you said. Right. It, it de right. Individual consumers don't have much power over anything where there's you know a large organization, and maybe they shouldn't. You know, the squeaky wheel may not necessarily be the right answer. May not represent the consumers. So. We encourage our clients to make sure that the board of the successor organization, even if it is a big for-profit, even if you don't want to do a 50-50 deal, make sure there's some voice in there. So, because they want to hear their consumers, but they want to make sure they're hearing the correct voice of the consumers, not the loudest complainer. 
Okay, well. And I hope I'm not insulting any of your neighbors when I say that. I don't know any of them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know my neighbors either, but I, I, I think that, again, this issue about quality of care, quality of health care, it's not just it's not just local, it's not just regional. I think people are asking that question generally. So far, what people seem to have concentrated on uh, outside of this context is insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we pay for it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the, the partisan divide over whether uh, the, whether there should be a government-run healthcare program for everybody, or whether there should be uh, choice, and should choices be subsidized, and should the government set minimum standards of coverage? But that really, um, in our world, only answers part of the question. It p- talks about p- who pays for it, but it doesn't really speak to the issue of the level of care. And the quality of care, and I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you one question real quick. Nursing homes have gone through a transition in the last 10, 15, 20 years, to, to where most nursing homes in this country are owned by for-profit companies, and then there's questions and concerns being raised that they're not being run properly. Is that a fair comparison to for-profit hospital systems? I don't think so, because. In this case, you had a not-for-profit that was very well run, apparently. Um, a lot of mom and pops, they have a human touch, but there, there are some disaster stories of local nursing homes. In fact, you know, with the COVID uh, pandemic, nursing homes were targets, not just because they had more elderly, it's also because they're not that professionally run in many cases. So having a for-profit or even a larger not-for-profit involved is good. The problem is in the nursing home industry, there aren't that many not-for-profits that own a lot of homes. They, they, don't, they don't want them. So I don't know the answer to that. But on, and I don't do that work necessarily. But on the hospital side, um, maybe the main problem you have, it sounds like there's no competition there. If I don't like your hospital and I live in Asheville, I, there's nowhere I can go conveniently. There's a few alternative hospitals. They may not have the same level of equipment and, and specialization, but there are, there are some alternatives. Okay, well, that keeps, that keeps uh, Mission honest. Um, I did notice somewhere that Mission is a five-star hospital. It's one of the first things I looked up from public information. That's extremely rare. And they earned that five-star status, I believe, since HCA has owned it. That is one of the measures, and there's lots of measures out there, in fact, I read an article called A Report Card on the Report Cards, because there's so many ridiculous report cards. But Five Star is the one that it's run by CMS, the Medicare people, and there's no goofing around. That is a very severe test. And if a hospital's five star, you're a very lucky person. All right. Well, Joseph, that's going to have to be our last word. I want to uh, thank Joseph Lupica. Lupica. Uh, for being my guest today. And again, I'm practicing your name seven more times and have you on the show again to talk more about these issues. Thanks again. That'd be fun. Thank you, Mark.